How is everybody doing? And welcome back for another Strength Chat episode. Today, I have a very special guest for you all. Today, I'm joined by a coach, an educator, a mentor, an athlete. Today, I'm joined by the one and only Paul Oneid. How are you doing? Good. I like that one and only. <laughs> there's actually there's actually one more. My grandfather's name is Paul. Ah, okay, that's fair enough. <laughs> he doesn't he doesn't train though. He's like 97. Oh, okay, that's a, that's a good innings. That's a good innings. <laughs> yeah. Maybe yeah. I'll live that long. Probably not, but maybe. Uh, you never know. You never know. Um, so how how are you, Paul? Um, what's been happening in your world? What what have you been up to? Man, I'm doing really well. Uh, I just got back. I went to the the Toronto Auto Show this weekend. Right. I was looking at a whole bunch of cars I can't afford to buy. Um, <laughs> But uh, other than that, I am kind of getting out of, I competed in a bodybuilding show in November. I've uh, been kind of taking time since then to like, kind of recuperate, get my body back to a set point, uh, get back to training because I am transitioning back into more of a powerlifting uh, focus because I would like to compete one more time in powerlifting at least. Um, and it's been a bit of a rough one. I'm up like 35 pounds um so it's been an adjust my body's like completely different than when i last touched the competition lifts um and then business is is going very well as you mentioned you know i do i do coaching i also do business mentoring for coaches and uh, i have an education site as well called coaches corner university uh, that we're actually looking to kind of change up the model and there'll be some interesting news in the coming weeks and months uh, about that transition but uh, yeah everything's good just rolling and getting ready to head into a productive off season. Hopefully, how oh, are you? Nice. I'm very, I'm very well. Yeah. There's a. a I was just gonna say a lot of things keeping you, um, uh, keeping you busy there. Um. Yeah. Yeah. For me. Um. So. Um. Uh, long, long story short, for me, but I ended up um uh, swapping gyms. Um. So I'm now head coach of a, of a new gym so that's been open for a, uh, for a couple of months now. So we're on track in terms of growing the membership and and that sort of stuff. So. Um. Yeah. That's been. Uh. That that that's been. Uh. Pretty pretty cool. Um. With the. Because obviously you said there are quite a lot of things that that you've been um, getting on with as well. Obviously, um, I heard you speak at the um, Kabuki Education Week, so I was living on Pacific time yeah. for a couple of weeks for for, for that. Um, how did you find that? Do you have other um, speaking um, gigs co- coming up, or how did you find that as opposed to speaking in in person to people? It's a bit different. So I have a lot of experience doing the Zoom style presentations because Coach's Corner is a um, pre-recorded site. So I do a lot of lectures to no one. So it was kind of weird. It, initially, it's weird to not have the feedback of a crowd, to not be able to read responses, understand, because um, most people have their videos off as well. And the way it was set up is like, I had Dan and I had me, and then I just knew how many people were in the room. Right. I couldn't see the little boxes at the bottom. Um, so like when I'm speaking live, it's very easy to know, like, if people are looking at you a certain way, maybe you elaborate on the point or, you know, maybe you breeze through a certain topic and come back to it. So a little bit of uh, you you lack the social cues in that regard, but it was really great. Uh, the questions I got were awesome. Um, the feedback I got was was really positive. So that's uh, that's always it's always nice. Um, as of right now, I don't really have any speaking engagements planned other than. Um, myself and my wife are putting on a workshop at our gym 
in April. And then in July, we're going to try and plan a seminar for my company, Master Athletic Performance, in the greater Toronto area. And we're going to try to have all six of our coaches there. Uh, so that'll be that'll be pretty cool to see if we can get a, a good turnout for that one. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Sounds sounds pretty cool. And I I always I always like to ask about because I've done the um uh, Kabuki Education Week for the um especially being in the UK, it's really good to you know listen to you know speakers such such as yourself. And I always wonder what it feels like because obviously when you from my point of view when you go into the um when you go into the lecture, obviously you you could just see someone like popping up and the, and the people in there. So I'm always curious to see what it's like from the from, from the speaker side. Um. Obviously, I did quite a brief um, introduction there, but we've touched on, mm-hmm. you know, the uh, the coaching, the mentorship. But for anyone listening who might not know your background, just want to give a little bit yeah. of a background background to yourself in terms of training and coaching. For sure. So I, you know, I grew up very active, played sports. I uh, played I played basketball in university actually for my first year of university, uh, and then transitioned into football. Had a knee injury, and it was through the rehab for that knee injury that I kind of fell in love with training. Um, I started training when I was 17, a little bit late, um, but all I wanted to do is play basketball prior to then. And it wasn't until I was like, okay, well, I can't really keep up with these kids. I got to lift, I got to run, I got to train, um, that I really started lifting. And then when I was rehabbing for that knee injury, I kind of realized I was like, I'm really strong. I should probably just be strong. And uh, so kind of started training for strength sports, but more so just to practice what I was preaching because around that time was when I started coaching kind of the local athletes, did some personal training. This is around 2007, I believe. Um, So I've been coaching for 16 years at this point, almost 15, 16 years. Um, And then from there, when I got into, so after I graduated, I have, I have a honors degree in human kinetics and I decided I wanted to go into coaching. So who's the best strength coach in North America? And it turned out to be Ron McKeefery, who was at the University of South Florida in Tampa. So I called him up. I was like, I'd like to come intern with you. Is that possible? He said, sure, just get yourself here. It's unpaid. It's 30, I think it was 35 hours, 40 hours a week. I was like, okay, I guess I'm moving to Tampa. Um <laughs> I worked like I worked at a supplement store. I did personal training. I did some online coaching. Uh, I bounced at a nightclub. Man, yeah, did all all four of those things for like ten months to save up enough money to move. Because uh, if you're living in another country under a travel visa, you can't work. Yeah. So I had to make sure that I had enough living expenses for the five months I was going to be down there. While I was down there, I got accepted to grad school. And so I did my master's degree at South Florida in exercise science, all the while working in the strength and conditioning department. And that's also when I started powerlifting. Uh, I started powerlifting as a means to gain credibility with the athletes that I was working with because I never played college sports. You know, I was this like, you know, chubby white kid from Canada. So what are these like NFL prospects going to listen to me for? You know what I mean? Um, But then when they realized that I was really strong and I was, you know, I was pushing myself to the same degree, I was asking them to push themselves it was a lot easier to have those conversations. Uh, from there, I moved to Pittsburgh and was a strength and conditioning assistant coach at Robert Morris University. And I also did another master's degree there in sports management. From there, I moved back to Tampa and I was the associate director of strength and conditioning at the University of Tampa for about seven months. And then I moved to Kingston, Ontario, 
which is just south of me uh, right now. I'm in Ottawa, Ontario, and I was the head strength and conditioning coach at Queen's University for a year. Uh, went, in, went through a bit of a burnout with the strength and conditioning with the college world. Uh, decided to step away, took a job in the private sector as a disability consultant. Uh, so essentially, I helped people who are on disability rehab and get back to work. So I coordinated the treatment plans. Uh, that also introduced me to the world of mental health. And during that time, that was re- remote work. So I was able to build my coaching business on the side to the point where after about six years, I decided, you know, coaching is a lot more fun than being at a computer all day, dealing with people and, you know, not necessarily the the type of work I want to be doing. So I stepped away from my full-time job and went into coaching full-time and uh, yeah, just continued to build my business from there. Nice. Quite a a varied, a varied background then in terms of coaching and, and education. And one thing that I just wanted to touch on is, Obviously, you know, getting involved in powerlifting and then working with the the athletes that you that, that you worked with, was it kind of um, a good balance of you having that training sort of in the train in the trenches yourself, but then also the education side of things to be able to um, speak to the athletes on on a level, if you like, rather than sometimes just trying to throw information at them from from what you've learned, if that if that made sense. Well, the, the beauty of it is it was like because I my training up to that point was primarily athletic development focused, I didn't ever have to ask a, a, a kid to do anything that I wasn't willing to do myself or hadn't already done. So there's a level of empathy as a coach there. So now when I coach someone through a bodybuilding prep, I've done a bodybuilding show. When I coach someone through a powerlifting prep, I've done a I've done 30 powerlifting meets. So I'm able to empathize with them and kind of let them know that the feelings that they're feeling are normal. I can validate them. I can reassure them. And I can also help them navigate these problems because I've also run into these problems as well. Um, In my opinion, if you're going to coach something, you should probably do it too or have done it in the past at a reasonable level. Like, People will ask me often, like, do I have to be good at something to coach it? No, but if you're not pursuing your own level of excellence, why would someone ever trust you with theirs? Like, if you can't even get yourself strong or stronger, yeah, how can you get someone else strong? How are you going to know what that feels like? Right. Like, and, and even I'll take it a step further. So at one point I was ranked in the top 20 all time in two different weight classes in powerlifting. When you get up to those levels of strength, you know, squatting over 800, deadlifting over 700, a lot of the rules just don't apply anymore. Right. Like volume landmarks, stuff like that. Like that it's 800 pounds. And unless you've experienced that or coached enough people that have experienced that, it's impossible to program for with any, with any like modicum of success. You can program for it, but you'll probably run your person into the ground. (laughs) Um, So like that level of empathy that you have by walking the walk is, is, is invaluable in my opinion. Yeah. And do, do you think because, and 
Uh, I think I, I think I mentioned in the email that there might be a couple of tangents in there. A question that's coming, coming yeah, for sure. There. But with that, do you think sometimes, especially for potentially you know um, younger coaches or coaches just just starting out, do you think that sometimes where um, it's got to be uh, they need to sort of you know dive into training and you know experience different things to then find out what their um, maybe specialist area is rather than being like, yeah, I can I can coach you with powerlifting and bodybuilding, but at the minute they might be only finding the feet in their in in their own training as well. If that, if that kind of makes sense. Oh, for sure. I mean, like, it's so hard to convince someone that this is the appropriate path to take, but working for free was the best thing I ever did for my career. It was, it expedited my learning to the nth degree. Think about the number of athletes that I was able to step in front of over the course of six years in collegiate athletics. It's like 500 student athletes per year, three to four times a week. I've seen a lot of squats, benches, deadlifts, cleans, snatches, dumbbell presses, push-ups, sprints. Mm -hmm. So it developed my eye to a degree like I see a lot of things others miss. I've also developed frameworks around how to assess movement. I've also developed frameworks for like, you know, you heard my talk talking about like how we manipulate the training paradigm based on what the goal is. And, you know, that framework was developed over the course of seeing that many athletes in a weight room. And then continuing, like, I think we've coached with Master Athletic close to 700 people over the course of the last, and that's going to grow quite a bit because now I have six coaches with me after this past year. But uh, yeah, we have like close to 700 athletes that we've coached. So it's a lot of people that have shaped this training paradigm with which I look at the, you know, the world through, so to speak. Um, So you have to put in your time. You really have to put in your time. And one thing that I think is the most valuable words that you can echo to a client, I don't know. (laughs) Shortly followed by, I will find out. (laughs) Like, imagine being in a position where you're able to humble yourself and say, you know what? I don't know the answer to your question, but I will absolutely find it for you. That's professionalism. The issue is you get a lot of kids who start coaching and they think they know everything. I was 100% that person. I remember my boss hated me because I always had an answer for everything and I was always right. But the more time I spend in this profession, the more I realize that very rarely is there ever one right answer. In fact, there's usually a bunch and you won't really know it's right for a long time. Yeah. Right? Like you can get away with doing the wrong stuff for a really long time before you figure out it was actually the wrong stuff. So unless you have like these built-in KPIs, key performance indicators, you're really not going to know like if you're on the right path or not unless you've walked that path 10s, 20s, 30, 40, 50 times with yourself and with different athletes. So you got to put in your time. So my, one of my biggest recommendations for coaches, like they want to start coaching, I'm like just start coaching for free, coach your friends, um, maybe charge 20 bucks just so there's at least some buy-in 
20, 50, whatever. At least there's some buy-in on their behalf. But as you as you grow your business, as you gather evidence of your ability to produce results, now you can start building a business. Yeah. I think that was a there was a couple of good points in there because it is that it is that case of, you know, like how do you get you know, stronger, you need to put the reps in. It's the same, like what you mentioned there yeah. about, you know, how many squats and deadlifts and sprints and bench presses that you've, that, that you've, that, that you've seen. It takes repetitions. It takes that time to see it. And it's funny that you say about, um, you know, if you don't, I, if you don't know the answer, you'll go and go and find that answer. Yeah. Um, that's essentially how this, how this podcast started. Um, at first I remember I just had my phone and I had uh, members of the gym and clients who were asking questions. And I thought, I know, I'll just answer the question and be like, cool, this is episode one. And then it got to a point where I got asked questions where I just felt as though I, I just wouldn't be able to do, give them a, yeah. a, an answer that I felt um, was, yeah, probably just good enough that I, I felt like I, I just I just couldn't do it. So, you know, reaching out to, you know, coaches such as yourself to, be able to give people the answers from there and you know from my point of view be able to learn a little bit um my, myself along the um along the way because you know I, it, sometimes so we have like um uh in in the past i've done, we've been involved in like internship programs with uh, younger coaches coming in and you know it's always awesome. a, 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 always a case of you know that that continued development keep learning you know because i look back to when i first first started out leaving uni thinking yeah i've got i've got all the answers i want to just yeah. throw all this jargon at people whereas actually you know i probably uh, i probably say less now than what i did at the at the start but you know i, I like to think what what i say um in in sessions and and feedback is is useful with it um one thing that sure. you mentioned there in terms of you know the um how you look in terms of the, the the programming and you know how you how you're working with clients what kind of what or who influenced how um you work now is it something that you refined over over time or is there more influence from 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 one aspect of what you've worked before or the other what what's kind of created that over, over time for your how you work that's a really really good question <laughs> um the number of people that have influenced me, I mean, I look like I have my bookcase behind me. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, every book I've ever read, every website I've ever visited. I mean, I remember initially it was Eric Cressy, Joe DeFranco, um, the old T Nation crowd uh, before it became more like a sales website. Uh, Christian Thibodeau, who's actually now like I, I speak with him relatively often, which is really cool. Um, <laughs> you know, I got the opportunity to be on Dave, on Elite FTS's Table Talk podcast uh, this past summer, which was a surreal experience. And Elite FTS, man, everything, everything I've ever, I've everything they've ever put out, I've read. Um, the coaches that I've worked with at the college level, I mean. Frank Wintrick, who is University of Virginia, UCLA, Utah State, Arizona State, yeah, Arizona State. Uh, Ron McKeefrey was the University of Tennessee. Um, he's now at Fresno State. Uh, Mark Hickox, head strength coach of University of Virginia. Justin Thiel, the University of Tampa, and then even like the private sector guys, my training partners. Um, 
Todd Hammer at Robert Morris University. Like all of these people have had profound impacts on me as a as a lifter and as a person. Um, and then I mean, you know, all the basic like all those old Russian texts, I've read them. All like, you know, science and practice of strength and conditioning. Read it. All of Chad Wesley Smith's books, Mike Israel's books. Read them. Read them. It's like, so for me, it's an accumulation of knowledge over the course of the last fifteen years. It's also an accumulation of trial and error by blowing my body apart over the last 15 years. Um, man, my training part, like I got so lucky with my training partners when I moved back to Ottawa. Like yeah. at one point I was training with Jay Nira, who's the number one 220 lifter in the world. Cade Weber, who's the number one 242 lifter in the world. Willie Albert, who is the number one 181 in the world in the past. And Shane Church, who's an equipped lifter, is the number one 242 lifter in the world. Like, those are my training partners. <laughs> I squatted 800 pounds as the, the weakest person in the room. <laughs> so just like that situation where I put myself in the shark pool with dudes that were absolute savages. I remember the first time I ever met Jay. He was like swearing under his breath, listening to music and then running outside and puking between sets of 700 pound deadlifts. <laughs> I'm like, okay, this is where I need to be. Um, <laughs> I try to do that same thing on the academic and coaching side. I try to surround myself with people who I view as being better than me. The funny part is, is a lot of those people who I view as better than me don't view themselves as better than me, which is so odd to me, you know? So like when I saw the, the, the presenter list at the Kabuki education, because like, Holy shit. And they asked me <laughs> like me. Um, but like, so that's to me, that's been the most advantageous thing for me and my development is like being in the room where I'm the weakest being in the room where I'm supposed to be the dumbest and never believing that I have all the answers because I don't, and I never will. And you, like, you never will. So-and-so coach never will. And we're in a world where, you know, the, the most successful people on social media, which is the, the currency of our society right now, are those people who have unequivocally attached themselves to some niche concept Carnivore MD, liver king, uh, guy like the number, like knees over toes guy, like all these people who are incredible, they're so tied to this one thing. So if you ever question them on that thing, they can't budge their opinion because that's their entire credibility is attached to that. I never want to be that. Yeah. Because one thing is never the answer. If you only have a hammer and everything's a nail, but we don't live in a land of nails. <laughs> some people are bolts. Some people are screws. Some people are nails. Some people are, uh, you know, rivets. So, <laughs> you have to have a massive toolbox. Yeah. So I rambled on and on about a lot of nothing, but diversify your education and always keep a white belt mentality, right? Even if you believe yourself to be smart, 
Like I'm under no delusions that I'm an intelligent human being, but I don't know everything. And there are a lot of people who have more in-depth knowledge on certain topics than me. So if I want to learn about those topics, I go to those people and I still actively invest in my continuing education, both practically and academically. I wanted to learn about bodybuilding. I registered for John Jewett's J3 University course. I went through that and I hired Luke Miller, who coincidentally went to U- to the University of South Florida a couple of years after I did. Oh, so that was, was a nice you know connection. But I worked with Luke, who works for John, and we went through a bodybuilding prep. So I did the education and I went through the prep. Now I can coach people through preps. So you have to have, in my opinion, you have to have both sides and you just have to put in a lot of time. And every time I talk about that, I feel so fucking old. <laughs> like, yeah, I've been doing this since you were eight. <laughs> like I've been coaching, like, so my wife is 27. I've been coaching since she was 12. <laughs> experience that's all it is it's just it's it's all it is yeah for sure <laughs> but what a couple of things that you that you mentioned there i thought were, were were some really good points because you know it's it's i think from um and i know i i kind of um went went through a phase like this especially when you know I, I first started you know reaching out to other coaches and athletes i was like who would who would want to speak to you know me just you know a coach from a, a, a coach from leeds Whereas actually, you know, when you're um, generally wanting to, you know, know answers and, you know, and, and learn, I think I've been, I mean, I always, I always feel lucky when people, when people do reply, but that uncomfortableness, if you like, actually you end up being able to develop, uh, develop it a little bit more and, you know, build, build that network from there. I think, which is shown over the um, X amount of, uh, uh, of episodes that I've done that, you know, people are willing to, um, share their knowledge and the, the biggest thing for me is if somebody can take at least one thing from each episode right at least then they've you know I've helped them you know go, go from there which you know I think is I think is useful because you know I think there's you know whether it's going into a, a, a gym to train with people who are stronger or fitter or faster than you that you know they're just going to be like wow, well what are you what are you training what are you training with us for or what are you coming here for whereas actually you know I think it's um people will be surprised at how much other people will help you you know to to develop oh which I think is good one of my favorite things in the world is having conversations with people who can be objective and not emotional about topics now you've interviewed a lot of really intelligent people. Like I went through like a little bit of your catalog and the types of people that you've interviewed. Tell me that the most intelligent, amazing coaches that you've interviewed were not the people who actively sought to be proven wrong. They all are. The And that's something that I learned a long time ago. And I hold with me to this day. If I can have a conversation with somebody who is actively trying to prove me wrong, it only serves to make me better because I have to defend my point of view and I have to be malleable in my approach and I have to communicate it to somebody in a way that they understand. And if I am proven wrong, fucking fantastic. I just learned something. (laughs) 
like there's no you cannot have an ego in this if you want to progress the easiest way to halt your progress is to always stay in your echo chamber and to have an ego about your knowledge base and your expertise yeah without a doubt yeah i think that's um i, I know we um uh uh, went down a went down a little bit of a, a, a rabbit hole there for the for the <laughs> side of things, but I thought that was, I think that was um, that that was that was really useful because I think you know for um, with and you kind of you kind of touched on it in terms of you know social media is like the um, uh, the success or failure of how people uh, of how people are seen, whereas actually sometimes the the person with the loudest voice isn't it's not always not always very there, very always seldom it is yeah um so it's just a kind of um yeah which i'm a i'm a big believer in when i'm whether i'm speaking to you know uh, younger coaches or or clients is just you know sometimes just filter out filter out that information uh, information a little bit one thing that you said there about you know being um uh, you know proven uh, proven wrong or, pro- or or proven right um the and one thing that you touched on and we mentioned it at the start in terms of you know manipulating exercises that that risk to reward ratio and i think sometimes that um from coaches that they'll have a bank of exercises that they feel need to be in people's people's programs um but aren't necessarily depending on where people and obviously as strength chat more yeah. talking about powerlifters and bodybuilders but what's kind of the process within your head of um, where the exercise selection uh, 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 goes within a program, within a phase of training, off season, on season, so that people are like, right, okay, we're still getting a training effect, but we're still taking the other other things into into account to get the most benefit. So there's a few like axioms that you need to live by in general with training. So it's like exercises are going to move from the highest neurological demand to the lowest neurological demand the highest level of stability required to the highest level of stability offloaded from the fastest to the slowest from the highest skill to the lowest skill. If you adhere to that, you're probably going to be okay for most, for most things. Um, Where that gets a little bit more nuanced is when you start talking about, uh, you know, hitting the appropriate amount of volume for a given muscle group and bodybuilding, right? So you might want to prioritize certain body parts over others. And this is like higher level stuff in general, take a middle of the line approach, train really, really fucking hard. You'll get 90% of the way to wherever you want to go. I firmly believe that yeah. I actually just had a conversation with a buddy of mine at the gym Um And I said, you know, the two most important things about training are do things that you really love doing and learn what effort is. Because if you're having fun and you actually know how to train hard, you're going to get really strong. You're going to get really big without question. Now, managing, managing recovery is one thing, right? So when you talk about a power lifter, for example, that's going to be a lot more challenging because the movements that you're selecting are going to be more systemically fatiguing. They're all going to be internally stabilized, meaning that your body has to stabilize the load. They're all going to be axially loaded. So the bar, the, the load of the bar is going to be on the skeleton, meaning a vertical loading strategy. 
uh, with the exception of the bench press. But when you incorporate leg drive, now you have a full body movement. Um, and then the loads are going to be huge relatively. So the bulk of that person's recovery demand is going to come from those exercises. So how do we manage that recovery? One of the best ways to do that, especially for someone who is not enhanced, is to increase frequency. So increasing frequency is a great way to improve motor learning. So get way better at performing the movement from a practice perspective. You want to get better at free throws? Practice your free throw. But further to that, we can have smaller exposures in each session. So instead of digging a ditch, we just dig a hole. So I, I like that analogy because it's really conceptually very easy to understand. So anytime you train, anytime you put your body under stress, you're digging a hole of fatigue. That fatigue triggers your body to accrue fitness. Fitness being whatever adaptation that you're trying to stimulate. That adaptation is going to be specific to the demands placed upon it. So if you want to get good at one rep maxes, you're probably going to have to train relatively close to one rep maxes. We can get a little bit more nuance at that, but instead of doing, you know, massive amounts of volume within one session, we might take that same amount of volume and spread it over three days or two days, depending on the lift, depending on the needs of the lifter. That frequency is going to be dictated by a number of factors, their body size, their relative strength, their absolute strength, uh, their experience level, orthopedic demands, all of these things, gender to some extent. Um, and then from there, you want to choose assistance movements that will build that main lift. So assistance movements for me are classified into positional or structural. So positional being they have a weakness in some range of motion of that competition movement. So we're going to spend more time there. So that's pauses, pin presses, uh, one and a half reps, tempos, um, cha changing the range of motion. So like adding a deficit, altering the center of gravity. So it's changing the bar. Those are fantastic ways to do that. But again, systemically demanding. So what I actually like to do is I'll do a main lift on one of the days of the week, and I'll do that supplemental barbell lift on another day of the week. Increase neurological efficiency, motor learning, and we're working on the deficits. From there, you have to go into function or uh, structural builders. This is where we talk about building the musculature, filling out the frame. There's actually quite a lot of evidence that shows like a really shitty link between hypertrophy and strength. We used to believe in general that cross-sectional area was proportional to muscle strength. Cross-sectional area is proportional to the, the possibility of strength. And I believe that the limitations of the current research, which show that hypertrophy work does not improve strength, is limited by time. Because the, the studies are done within like 12-week time frames. But in order to accrue a meaningful amount of muscle mass, you need a lot longer than 12 weeks. Yeah. But anecdotally, when you look at the, the amount 
of strength difference from weight class to weight class for people who have jumped weight classes. Relatively speaking, body weight did, doesn't equate to a meaningful degree to the amount of strength the person accrues. So there's a lot of evidence both ways. Personally, I think appropriately dosed hypertrophy work will improve your resiliency under the barbell because you are training the structure, the connective tissue, the tendons, all of these things. And who doesn't want to look like they lift? <laughs> like, I don't know. I don't want to, I don't want to see a marshmallow squat. <laughs> like, I always, I always joke. I'm like, if you look like a tube sock full of mashed potatoes, when you put your singlet on, there's a problem. <laughs> so, um, so when you have those classes of exercises, right, then you look at, okay, where are the needs for this person? Again, reverting back to like, are we going to bias certain lifts? Are we going to bias certain muscle groups? And then we go into the session and go fast to slow, high skill to low skill, heavy to light. And we arrange our sessions in that way. And then you know what we do? We train really fucking hard. <laughs> and then we look at what we're, I get my athletes to take notes every day on like how they're feeling, how they're performing. I get them to log book. So they'll record their loads, their reps. And then we see, are we making meaningful progressions week to week? Are we able to hit the prescribed workloads? Is our performance within a given effort range? So like an RPE range or a percentage range indicative that we're moving forward. Right. So we have these different KPIs built in. And if we're not, we're either doing too little or we're doing too much. And then we have, then we have to look at, okay, where are we doing too little or where are we doing too much? And you might even be in a place where you're doing too much of too little. Yeah. yeah. Right. Like I remember there was one, I was working with a coach and initially my volume on the main lifts was too low. And my volume on the assistance work was too high. So I was always fatigued. And I was like, well, I could just put more volume on the main lift, ditch the accessory work to a large degree. Oh, look at that. I actually made progress. <laughs> so I was doing too much and too little at the same time. Yeah. With we, we, that, because um, I know, obviously, you know, you've, you've gone through kind of like your... Um, uh, your thought process, the 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 philosophy philosophy around that, and I think um, a big thing is going to be effort when people when people go into the go into the gym. But do you think yeah. that's where um, coaches or even you know because I know there is uh, there's some lifters that you know program program for themselves where you know they're putting their efforts into the in, into the wrong place and you know they're not getting efficient. Um, I don't know what the phrase I'm looking for. Yeah, they're, they're not being efficient with the with the training, so they're just spinning the wheels. If that, if that makes sense. Um, yeah, I see that more so. So, like, there's two, there's a few different kinds of lifters. There's the lifter that will literally run his head through a wall, and just will continue to put. He's just so hard headed, and will train himself or herself into the ground. Then there's a lifter who will try to find the easy way out for everything. Then there's a lifter who looks at the wall and then finds the door and walks through the door. <laughs> um, so you have to know what kind of athlete that you're dealing with. 
I'm very lucky that I've developed a few strategies over the years to kind of teach people what effort is. And so having those in place, we're like, okay, maybe we do an AMRAP, but we do it on a really safe exercise. So there's no chance the person can hurt themselves. And we teach them what failure truly is. Hmm. And they're like, oh, wow. Like I can actually move a lot slower than I am. (laughs) Right. Like, have you ever grinded a squat Yeah, and then you go to do the next rep? You're like, there's no fucking way I'm standing this up. And then you do that could have been potential progress left on the table. Had you been a little bitch, <laughs> but you weren't. <laughs> um, and that takes time to learn. Um, so we could achieve that same thing on say a leg press. Let's do a set of leg press to failure. End up getting like, you know, usually they want to rack it five to six reps early. And you actually see that in the research too, like the reps and reserve research. People are really, really bad at gauging reps and reserve. So I use it sparingly, to be honest. A lot of the assistance work that I program is to failure. It's like you're doing a leg press, go to failure. Yeah. You're doing a leg extension. You're not going to accumulate systemic fatigue doing a leg extension. Yeah. So let's fucking give her. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So the, the level of effort is, is very, very important, but also like take the front squat, for example, I love front squats. I've never met a person with a shit front squat or a good front squat and a shit squat. but I've also met a lot of people with great squats who suck at front squatting. I personally believe that the front squat is a fantastic builder for the squat. And I used to get all my athletes to do them, but all of them hated it. They complained relentlessly. So I knew that they weren't going to try as hard as they could. So I stopped programming front squats when I started programming uh, safety bar front squats. So it's much more comfortable. The bar sits on your shoulders. You don't have to worry about, you know, r- dropping your rack position or upside down safety bar squats where you rack the, the, the safety bar backwards. So the plates are up in front of you. Yeah. Upright squatting pattern, huge midsection implications. Boom. Similar movement. It's not a front squat, but it's pretty damn close. And people find it more enjoyable, so they put more effort into it. Yeah. Do you think from because uh, we you kind of go back to what we said at the start about um, you know experience it in your own training? Yeah. Obviously, from there, there's a lot of things that where you know you might have done that in your own training or seen you know other people that you've trained with. Do you think that maybe comes from um, if people are doing a front squat, they're like, "Well, why can't you do a front squat? We're just going to try and keep hammering away at, at, at front squats, knowing that people might not be able to put effort into it." That comes down to you know the experience of not being able to experiment with exercises from their own training or you know building well, up that bank of bank of knowledge. I'll put it, I'll put it to you this way: again, returning to A lot of what I've said in this conversation around coaching centers around the individual because ultimately we're coaching a person, not a program, right? Mm -hmm. And that's something that I hold to a very, very high amount of like that statement, coach the coach, the athlete, not the program for me, it's like rule number one of coaching. So 
there's two types of athletes when it comes to three. There's the person that's going to do what you tell them to do. They're not going to complain. They might not enjoy it, but they're not going to complain. You have the person who's going to lollygag around, complain about it the whole time, and still do it. Then you have the person who's going to suck at it and see that as a challenge, and that'll actually motivate them to get better. Right? So which, which type of person is this? Is it the person who gets really discouraged when they suck at something? Or is it the person who gets fired up that there's an opportunity to improve? Hmm. It's like, oh, I suck so bad at this. I bet if I get really strong at it, it'll improve. Yeah. Cool. I'm that person. Yeah. So I, I, I used to have a lot of trouble relating to the other people. But my time working as a disability rehab specialist, like I transitioned from college strength and conditioning to like 50 year old women with anxiety who couldn't leave their house. Yeah. Very, very different communication strategy with those two populations. And I got a crash course in how to relate to people, how to communicate with people, how to challenge their beliefs without compromising their values. Right. That to me, I think was a really big expediter to my communication ability and uh, it really kind of showed me how important it is to to get that buy-in from the individual in order to make the plan more productive. Yeah. How how did you just just touching on that? How how did you find you know that 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 tran- that that transition? Because especially that that is that that you know that's a you know night and day. I can imagine in terms of sometimes yeah. the communication. So I really love the rehab process. So when I left strength and conditioning, I I actually, so when I was going through my burnout, I just quit. I literally was like, I cannot keep doing this. I walked into my athletic director's office. I was like, I quit. She's like, whoa, 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 whoa. Like, no, I'm done. She's like, can you, can you stay a month and train whoever we hire? It's like, fine. So I trained the new guy I left. I was like, I'll just personal train a little bit. And let me tell you, personal training, not for me. I tr- I personal train a few people now, yeah. but they're people I really like. And they they also have like nuanced injury histories and personal trainers in the past have really failed them. So my expertise allows me to actually help them make progress. And I find the problem solving really interesting. And they're also really cool people. But personal training wasn't for me. So I started looking on LinkedIn. I started looking on a few of the the recruiting websites that we have up here. And I came across this ad for a functional rehabilitation specialist. And the requisites were, you know, kinesiology degree, bilingual, because I speak French too. um, And a whole bunch of other skill sets that I had learned by being a head strength coach. And I went in, (laughs) I interviewed for it. I did really well, spoke, I had to speak French and I hadn't spoken French in like five years. So it was was interesting. Um, And then she, the, my boss, Sally was like, oh, you know, this is a fully remote position, right? I was like, wait, so I get to work from home in my underwear. (laughs) And she's like, well, I'd prefer you weren't in underwear when you were on video calls with people, but yeah, I was like, 
did I get the job? (laughs) (laughs) And it was awesome. And I tell people all the time, like when I talk about, you know, we talk about young coaches, how do I get into coaching? Like number one, put in your time. Number two, if you want to make a living at it, you probably want to build your business to a point in a stable environment where you're not like poor. (laughs) Like I was making 65,000 a year full time while I was building my coaching business. I wasn't poor. I was paying my bills. Coaching was an added bonus. It let me pay off my student loans really fast. And as soon as I was done, my student loans, I was like, cool. Like this is really profitable. There's a few tweaks I can make. Here you go. Yeah. And then I was able to quit. Oh, nice. Yeah. I think for for but having that transition from there, I think sometimes it is um trying to uh put those put those things in, in, in place for that. And it is, you know, you've just said there how 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 you've done it. Whereas I think sometimes um people will think, oh, I don't know, I don't know how I'm gonna do it. Whereas, you know, there's opportunities, uh, opportunities there um with it as well, which can put yourself in a in a, a position. But again, you know, it's always gonna fall back to um it things things take time. It's not gonna all of a sudden be like I'm just gonna leave and I wanna I wanna do this. Like, you know, it takes time it takes time to build it up, build it up from there. And it takes time to build a business. Like there's a big difference between a person who coaches people and someone who operates a coaching business. Mm -hmm. Very big difference. Uh, And I was speaking to a young lifter this weekend who's, I use the term coach very loosely here because I was actually embarrassed that this person called them a coach (laughs) who delivers their programming through Instagram DMs. Wow. That's embarrassing to the profession, in my opinion. Um, So the level of the barrier of entry to online coaching, very low. But that's a guy who coaches people Mm. poorly. Whereas with our coaching business, we pay taxes for one. (laughs) Um, We have a Google Drive for our clients full of resources. We have a Discord channel and a Facebook group for them. We do video calls. We have uh, templated check-in sheets, uh, you know, standardized communication guidelines. You know, when you sign up to, you know, when you when you sign up for your insurance, they give you a terms of service, which says this is what you're going to get from us. We have one. Right. We have a cancellation policy. We have you know policies in place that allow us to run our business consistently, whether you're working with myself, my wife, Olivia, or even our newest coach, Carly. And across the board, the same level of service. That's a coaching business. Yeah. And that takes time to build. And in this day, people believe like, oh, if I just start posting on social media that I'm coaching, I'll get clients. Nope. Because as soon as the the way the algorithms work now is as soon as you offer a service, it nerfs your visibility. So if you attach a a product or a service to your post, Instagram reduces your reach. So how do you put it out there that you're coaching clients, that you are offering a service, that you're good at what you do. Well, you need social media because you're if you exist in an online space, you need to have an online presence. 
but your social media is essentially your business card. So when you went, when you heard about me or you heard me speak, you went to my social media page and you're like, oh, this guy knows what he's talking about. I got credibility from my social media page. That's one of the goals of social media. The other goal is to add value, right? So you identify who your ideal client is, and then you speak to them. You address the issues that they're running into. You show that you can solve those issues, and then you provide evidence of you solving those issues. That gets the buy-in, increases your social capital, increases your credibility. The other thing that you need to do in your social media is share a bit of your humanity. I share my dogs. I share my wife. I share my my own training, right? Because as much as people want to work with master athletic performance, if they're being coached by me, they want to work with me, the person. Yeah. They don't want to work with this, you know, ultra technical AI robot coach. <laughs> and I mean, there's a lot of AI programs that can write programming now, but they're not coaches. Right. So social media serves a purpose. In this day and age, very little of that purpose is client acquisition. So then you say, how do you get clients? You start talking to people in real life. Because as soon as you start coaching a couple people, those people tell other people. Now you can also start sharing that you coach people. You start changing the language with which you speak on social media. So when you make your posts on social media, instead of saying, I like to do this, say, I program this for my clients because when I coach a lifter towards X, you start speaking as a coach. Immediately, someone's like, oh, you're a coach. You know, when I started mentoring coaches, I started sharing the successes of the people that I was mentoring. I started speaking from a perspective of, when you build a business, I've helped people build businesses that, yeah. right? So that's little subtle ways, but the big one is, you know, leverage your assets, level your, leverage your social credit um, and, and know the audience that you're speaking to ahead of time so that you can tailor your language toward that. And it'll start picking up. It'll come slow, but it'll pick up. Yeah. And then that three clients turns into six, that six turns into 10. That 10 turns into 12, 15. And then at, at about that 20 client mark, that's when enough people are talking about you that your progress kind of hockey sticks. And that jump from 20 to 30, 20 to 30, 30 to 40 gets pretty quick. Yeah. I think that was a, a, a lot of good things there. And one thing that I was, as I was, as you were speaking, I was kind of nodding about is I think. Yes, there's um, AI and all those sorts of things, but you kind of touched on it before in terms of uh, when I asked the question, what influenced your take on programming and exercises? You actually went and spoke to people. You actually went and found, you know, you know, training partners, and we can get around, you know, all of the the um, new things that you can do and everything. But ultimately, coaching is. Um, one coach and one client and building that relationship, getting that buy-in and being able to know 
again another point that you mentioned you know you're coaching that individual you're not coaching you know just oh yeah just use this program it's that person that's in front of you and you know we, we touched on it a couple of times of you know everyone's going to be different in terms of what they um uh, mechanically what they what what they can do you know emotionally how, how, how they feel about things and everything so yeah i think that's a that, that's a really good point and quite a lot of um, topics and, and tangents thrown in there, yeah. Paul. We've chatted about Sorry. today, but um, the the last pre workout in my system right now. The, <laughs> the, um, the 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 last question that I like to, I like to ask from everything that we've sure. that we've chatted about there, and for everyone listening, what would be your take home points or words of wisdom? Does it have to be from what we talked about? Uh, it, it could it could be anything 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 you like. <laughs> So there's two things that I think really help me from a life perspective and also from a coaching perspective, training perspective. So I try to live my life in a way where like 12, 13 year old Paul would be like, yo, you're fucking cool. (laughs) So like for me thinking about are the decisions that I'm making today in line with my both my past and my future? So I think a lot about the future, like my wife, my future children, what retirement looks like. Am I meaningfully moving towards that place? And am I doing things that are making me happy? Asking yourself, Am I happy? It's probably one of the most sobering questions that you can ask yourself. Okay, so ask yourself, are you truly happy? And are you truly having fun? Because life, you only get to live life once. Like people say YOLO. And it's usually attached with like, I'm going to do stupid shit. It's like, no, like have the experiences, make sure that they're meaningful, be present in your life, be the driver of the car. That's number one. And, and you can apply that broadly across every aspect of your life from training to work to your daily activities. The other thing, probably not what you would expect me to say, but contemplate death. And that's a very like, so there's a stoic, um, the sto- stoicism is a branch of philosophy. Um, I'm not really going to go into it, but they have this concept called memento mori, which simply means remember death because all of us will die. All of us only have one life to live. So any moment that you're not present, any moment that you're not actively pursuing things that fulfill you, in my opinion, is a moment wasted. Time is a non-renewable resource. So make the most of the time that you have here. Applying that to training. Make sure what you're doing is fun. Make sure what you're doing is leading you towards progress. Make sure that what you're doing actually is moving the needle. When it comes to your nutrition, make sure what you're doing tastes good. (laughs) Make sure what you're doing is actually, again, moving the needle. Same with life, right? Like, Actively seek out things that make you better. Oftentimes those things cause a lot of discomfort. But that's how you make progress. Then just keep doing that for a really, really long time. Yeah. 
You probably uh, get to where you absolutely and why i was smiling when you when you mentioned that there because there's i can't think what i think what, what it's called you might you might have just said it it was there where there's a calendar and you tick off and it's like the the week the weeks of the the, the weeks of the year and you count down from there and funnily enough i had a conversation about this couple of a couple of weeks ago with it with, with another coach that i know and actually um it's a it's actually attached to the wall just above where my um laptop is that i'm facing now and i have um one for my training one for um work um one for just like just like just like personal life and then mm-hmm. one you know uh, fun th- fun thing that we want to do there and i think sometimes unless you've like had a look into it i'm really glad that you mentioned about that because sometimes when i've said it before i'm thinking about yeah should i should i mention like death because i don't think people <laughs> people are like what, what do you mean but actually, it's a bit of a weird concept i mean mm-hmm. like there's also uh I forget who said it, but I heard it along. I think it might've been Jordan Peterson. He was like, write your own obituary. Like, what would people say about you when you die? And like, not that everyone in the world is going to like you all the time, but if you leave the world a better place than you came into it, it's a pretty, pretty cool thing to think about. Yeah, definitely. Like I don't, I don't aspire. Like I mentioned the car show and all these cars I can't afford. (laughs) Like I don't aspire to be wealthy, right? I aspire to be able to support my family comfortably, to be able to do the things that I want to do and have some measure of financial freedom. And if I can do that through things that align with my personal values and that align with things that I love and that align with helping people, man, Think about how cool that is. Yeah, absolutely. Think about how unique of a situation that is to say, I help people and and I help them in a meaningful way. And that help allows me to live the life that I want to live. You ever seen the movie Office Space? No, no, I'm not saying that. Really? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> no. <laughs> You should watch the movie Office Space. the The premise of the movie is there's a, a a gentleman who's like hates his life, works in an office, is going about his daily life, contemplating how shitty it is, and then there's a whole bunch of hilarious things that happen. <laughs> but I imagine the average person like that. <laughs> they wake up, they hate their life. They they trade forty hours of work during the week for two days of a weekend that they can't even enjoy because they're recovering from the shittiness of the five days prior. Like, I never want to be like that. Yeah. I do, I do always say, I don't think I could, um, yeah, work. Uh, yeah. I don't think I could work in a, in, in an office or, or, or anything like that. So. <laughs> the only reason I was able to for six years was because my boss left me alone. He's <laughs> like, this is your job. Do your job. I don't care how you do it. Just follow the rules. And we're good. It was awesome. <laughs> oh, nice. Um, I think there was a, we could have done a, 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 a completely um, another episode after uh, after those 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 words words of wisdom there. But no, I was I was glad you mentioned that, and I think you, yeah, you you explained it a lot better than I think what I've what I've done to other people from there. But literally a couple of weeks ago, I had that conversation, and then um, there's a there's like um, 
like a hobby craft um, shop not far away from where the gym is. I was just walking past and I was like, I'm going to I'm gonna grab one and I'm going to do that. And actually, you know, it's that thing of, right, what have, what have I actually done this week? Doesn't doesn't always happen every week with, you know, other things other things that happen, but, you know, that's not the, um, for, for people listening, that's not the point of it. The point is like, you know, you've, um, I think the biggest thing that I'm a, a big believer in is that if you say you're going to do something, actually do it. Did you say what you what you said you were going to do? Did you put that effort in? Um, and, you know, along the way, if it's things that actually mean, you know, all the things that I've written down are things that, I enjoy that are fun. You know, they're not they're not things that ah, I'm not obviously those things need to do need to get done sometimes, but you know, if you do the things that you enjoy, it's not, you know, it's they're they're not gonna become chores and you're not gonna, you know, end up end up falling behind from that. Um thanks a lot, Paul, for taking the time Pleasure. to jump on. Really, really enjoyed chatting with you today. Um That's for everyone great. listening who uh, might want to see the content that you put out there, um, the coaching that you offer it offer, the the mentorships, where can where can people um find you or reach out to you? For sure. So uh our website is www.masterathletic.com. You can find me on Instagram at Paul Oneid, P-A-U-L-O-N-E-I-D, or at Master Athletic Performance. Uh and then you can find Coaches Corner University uh, at Coaches Corner U or CoachesCornerU.com. Awesome. Um, yeah, thank, thanks a lot for taking the time to jump on. Really, really enjoy chatting. Pleasure, man. Um, Anytime. <laughs> thanks, uh, thanks a lot to everyone listening, and I will see you all next week.